<sighs> you ready? I'm double ready. I almost for dream. double dead. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. It's time for another episode, a book club episode. Our August our special once a month. Yeah, our August monthly book club episode where we will be discussing uh the double the complete double dead by Chuck Wendig. Which is a duology? Um, it's a book and a novella. So if you didn't read the complete Double Dead, pause because we're gonna spoil the shit out of the wrap up novella for you. If you just read the first one, it's short, the second one. Oh yeah. Read it in an hour, come back, listen to the podcast. It's fine. Um, Chuck Wendig, this was his debut novel. The the it's first an impressive one. debut novel. And then he comes back and writes the wrap up later. Okay. So, before we get started, hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. All right, I want your hot takes on this book immediately because this is like the third time I've read it, but this was the first time you have read anything like this, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so go. <laughs> go. So I would say uh, yeah. this is like a mix between uh, Harry Dresden and um, Cassidy from Preacher. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a really accurate description of um, the character. Yes, that that's my competent but unhinged. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we all we have all of the the unhingedness of Cassidy from Preacher with the like deep down he's he wants to be a good person. Later, I think. Later. Yeah. 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 Um and then the Harry Dresden like urban fantasy vibe, like action vibe. Mm. It is very actiony. Yes. This is not a romance. And I love the, like, sensual language. <laughs> sensual language. S sensual, not in a sexy way. Yeah. But sensual in evoking of the senses. Yes. Like the creme brulee tongue. The creme brulee tongue. The, the in my intestines sat in my hands like a pile of bloody sausages. <laughs> does have a way of describing things. Yes. I think that where it's most on display in a like visceral disgusting way is the cannibals in the Walmart when he's yeah. being eaten by Ambrosia. Yeah. Yeah. And she's describing like what parts she likes best and and then she gives him what the cannibals kiss to get mm -hmm. to his tongue. Yeah. Yeah. That, that whole scene is Fucking wild. <laughs> um, I can't imagine you have never written, or maybe he's written other books, but you're not published, and you take this to a publisher, and you're like, "This is bold." All right, hold, hold. This go be good. I didn't know this, but Chuck Wendig wrote the book that comes between Return of the Jedi 
and The Force Awakens. Oh. I think it's called Aftermath. He wrote the canon Yes. Book? Okay. Yeah, he wrote the, like, canonically published, this is the, the events that bridge Return of the Jedi. And well, I don't know if they bridge it, but it comes between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. And I was like, oh, Chuck, you made it. Woo-hoo. He does have another series. It's the, I think it's Marion, Marion Blackbird. Anyway, it almost made it to become a television show. And he definitely recycles this voice for Miriam. Gotcha. Um, which I'm fine with. I like this voice. What did you think of Coburn as a character? I liked Coburn as a character. Yeah. Yeah. I like the growth. He's he's the villain. He starts right. out as the villain. Yeah, he starts definitely starts out as the villain and uh, kind of uh, circumstances in conspire to uh, put him in a situation where he has to be more self-aware. Yeah. And that required self-awareness Im- increase produces self-improvement results. Right. Almost a split where he's no longer one with his monster. Right. And then his monster becomes like the voice in his head. Right, because at the very beginning, the voice that we like that he narrates to himself. You mean when he's nursing is... on the broken pipe like a baby at a mother's teat? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the voice, his like internal monologue is the monster voice. Mm-hmm. And then it's only when he has to like hold himself back that he really develops the like that tiny spark of the human he once was his voice mm-hmm. as his internal monologue. Right. And as separate from the monster. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's interesting place to start us off, um, like at the end. The world has already ended. Everybody is zombies. We know nothing about like the events that happened on the day, everything. We, and we don't really learn. We don't, I mean, we kind of get glimpses in people are still in cars. Everybody is still kind of going about their business as if it was super fast. But we don't find out anything about what happened during the zombie apocalypse. Right. We don't get a, a narrative yeah, so of that. It's all aftermath. And I like it when we just get dropped into action. Yeah, and we definitely do. And, and then we, we don't, don't stop. know we, the, especially when, um, I wonder if this technically counts as isekai. Please explain isekai <laughs> okay. for, the, for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for the listeners. Okay, isekai is a genre, I think most commonly in like anime, where the character is in one world and then they get teleported or reincarnated or whatever into another world that they are a stranger in. And so they just get, oh, now I'm like an American in. Oh, stranger in a strange like land. Narnia. Okay. Like it Nar- kind of is. Yeah. Narnia would, I think, count as isekai. I do like how quickly he picks it up. Yes. Yeah. He's like, all right, I can, I know how to take care of my needs. Yeah. And and then so the the point of view character 
we don't have to have a proxy for the viewer or the listener right? Uh, to explain how the world works because they don't know how the world works. I like those kind of introductions to like a universe, a story setting. Right. And that's very much Coburn when he first wakes up because somebody is killing a deer in the theater. Yeah, the zombies caught a deer in yeah. the theater and its blood is dripping down. Right. And it wakes him up and he ends up trying to eat the zombies but he can't and then he ends up eating the deer and then once he's got enough like blood to figure things out he's like oh shit something has happened and he's he calls them something different for a while and then finally he's like just just fucking say it these zombies like the, and then he has all those funny names for them at the beginning like house frau and yes he comes up with little nicknames for them yeah based on and what they're fits. wearing it works you believe it for the everything that he does is believable. I, I at no point feel like Coburn stretch that he stretches the Coburn character to achieve something. If I have a nitpick at all, it's that every single character seems to have the same voice. Like Kayla, like all the secondary characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not Ebby and not, but Kayla does. Kayla definitely talks to Coburn the way Coburn talks to Kayla, like immediately. Some of her turns of phrase don't they they don't flow as well from her as they do yeah, from that Coburn. Makes sense. Yeah, and then you end that. up you're like, oh, it's a little bit jarring. Um, I think I love the fact that she's like, I forget how old she is, but she smokes. She's like, what's it going to do? Kill me? Because right. she already has cancer. <laughs> and I I love that we don't explain why Kayla is magical until the very very end. Not I, even I then. guess we we explain we tell a story about something extraordinary that happened to her yeah but we don't give like a metaphysical no because explanation. this is a world where vampires exist so it's cool we don't need to explain every little thing yeah she can dreamwalk yes she can the people. kayla character with the dreamwalking and the like dreaming the future or dreaming what to do and and then the like voice in another person's head after they died reminds me of the passage, mm. which is that there are elements of what happens in the passage that are similar to elements of how Kayla's character. Yeah, if you stripped away exists. all of the humor and then put it on motherfucking steroids and made it three thousand pages long, it'd yes. be the passage. Yeah, and added some emails. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just think I really enjoy the Coburn character because he gets to be monstrous, but he also gets to be the hero. We don't have to yes, make him I do like that. wholesome. At no point does Coburn ever become what anyone might describe as wholesome. Right. We never idealize him. No. He he definitely saves the cat, though. Yep. This is a rule. This is a like a hard and fast rule. If you have a Making villain, an emotional character connection with the reader right if you want if you have a villainous character who is objectively horrible and it's difficult to get anyone to connect with them they have to save an animal they save a cat or in this play in this case they save a small dog and name it cream puff a grungy rat terrier i know i love cream puff <laughs> <laughs> i love how quickly cream does puff... the dog die.com no no dog does not die sorry Spoiler alert. Hopefully you read the second one. I warned you. This is the spoiler that you're allowed to spoil. Mm. Um, in some cases required. Yeah. 
No, Cream Puff never dies. Even though at one point he's going to eat Cream Puff, and then it, Cream Puff is like happy, like wagging happy its for tail. The, happy, happy for, for the, the close contact. attention. Yeah, and he's like, I'm not going to eat you right now. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you were telling me about Double Dead. Yeah. When you were reading it the last time, and that's the line that I said. Yeah. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Right. So I guess we could kind of talk through the plot. We did that with Babel and it seemed like it, it worked. So we, we wake up and or Coburn wakes up and then he very quickly also while folding in some exposition, which is nice, where we learn about his life. He's like, God damn it. I used to like live in New York. I was like the tick in the center of the web. I got to do whatever I wanted. He basically was in like a drug fog for like 50 right. years. He was. He was saddled up to the buffet for 50 years. Yeah. Um, not thinking about anything, just like hedonistic, doing exactly what he wanted. Very Cassidy from um, from Preacher, just completely absorbed by the, um, the pleasures that his life afforded. Yeah. And now those are all gone. Every single one of those trappings is gone. New York is dead. The entirety of New York is dead, and now he has to try to escape it. And almost immediately, we set up our main conflict, because he's jumping rooftop to rooftop. Somebody grabs his ankle, and he ends up falling. And we get a little bit of how the how the blood magic works. It's basically thaumaturgy, yeah. where he can move blood around his body at yeah, will. Yeah, and I, I really liked the the aspect of it's not the blood itself. Yeah. It's... The spark of life that the blood contains. And it's like piece of the soul or something like that. Yeah, he's like, I don't fucking care, but I just know but, that that's what but works. But in the sense, like in uh in the Dresden Files, in there's one of the books where he's a ghost and he's talking to um Bob and he's like, You're walking around in your bare soul, man. And <laughs> like he's like lost some of it. And he's like, No, I've lost some of my soul. And he's like, Oh, don't worry, it grows back. <laughs> Kind of like that, yes. Yeah, he he tries to fix his legs, and he doesn't do it fast enough, and a zombie bites him. And then we find out that zombie plus vampire equals super zombie. Yes. Or they call him the hunters. Yeah, that's the name he comes up with. Yeah, because they are chasing him continuously. But he ends up not dealing with it, because he just doesn't deal with his problems. He just runs away. So he ends up running away. And this is when he, like, sinks into the water because the sun's coming up. Yep. Yeah, he jumps in the river to yeah. wait out the day. And then we cut. I love his the way he doesn't always show things from Coburn's point of view. Sometimes we get right. these tiny like little. Like the very first intro is just describing this blood dripping down through cracks and things. And yeah. then it splashes on like his forehead. Right. And then, or it splashes on a forehead and then on a nose and a cheek and whatever. And then it finally drips on the tongue. Right. And then he like awakens and opens his mouth. Right. Yeah. He does a good, it's mostly third person limited where we're almost always from Coburn's point of view. And we get to see in Coburn's head, but every once in a while we head hop. And sometimes we head hop to these secondary characters we're never going to come back to. And that's what happens here because we talk to where we, we hear from um, like a cannibal guy who's been hanging out right by the river because everybody seems to want to cross the river right there. And, and the hospital. 
in the hospital. And that's how he kind of, he just waits and people come to him. And this is also where we pick up Cream Puff. Yep. And this guy is eating a cat, which is how you know he's a bad guy. Because he's an irredeemable, an bad irredeemable guy. bad guy. And he ends up getting eaten by Coburn. And Coburn's like, yes, like, I'm good now. Now I can finally go do some real hunting. And this is when he picks up Cream Puff. And then he also picks up the scent of the RV. And he ends up chasing the RV. And then we meet our our whole group of characters, which is going to be Coburn, obviously, Kayla, who is a young girl who has, like, she had months to live. That was years ago. So she's she has terminal cancer in a world where you don't get treated. She's on borrowed time. Yeah. And yeah, she's not on any medication or anything. Right. And then the veterinarian, whose name is? Lily. Lily. And Cecilia, the... Probably the most villainous character villainous in the book. And I, I wouldn't say she's villainous. She's traumatized. She's true neutral. Yeah. Yeah. True neutral. Completely out for herself. And Gil, who is chaotic good? Neutral good? I'd say he's neutral good. He's out for protecting himself and Kayla. Yeah. And um, Abner. Yes, Abner. If there's a problematic representation in the book at all, it's Abner. And the fact that we harp on Abner's weight a lot. Um, This is probably indicative of the time when it was published. It's also because our main character is not a sympathetic character. He's not the right. type of character who's going to not talk about something sensitive. Like Abner's uh, umami flavor? <laughs> On account fat, of the fat is flavor, the undead diabetes or the untreated diabetes. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I don't have diabetes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This, this is just me being. I don't know if this is just me being sensitive to the fact that we just we just don't let it go. Like we talk about how big Abner is all the time. Ebby, they call him Ebby. Yeah. Although one of my favorite exchanges is Abner or Ebby is just a he's a fairly like unreactive character he's a, just like a he's here he's just trying to survive he was a computer programmer everything is shit and he's just been in shock for years and so he's talking to Coburn which he immediately accepts what Coburn is because he gets attacked first and Coburn is like I'm not calling you Ebby that sounds like something a child would say and he's like yeah that's what my little brother used to call me he's dead now and Coburn's like oh uh, sorry, <laughs> like, <laughs> because he keeps stumbling into these really emotional things, but he's not an emotional character yet. Right. He keeps stumbling into everybody's triggers. Yeah. Because literally everybody is traumatized because it's literally the end of the world. Right. And he, he can operate as a member in a society to a certain extent that yeah, facilitates getting in and out of clubs and right. You know, seducing people to go off in a room with him. What does he call it? His hoodoo, his eye hoodoo, voodoo, voodoo eye voodoo that yeah. you do so well. Yeah, yeah. the hoodoo voodoo <laughs> you do so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he he's not functional. He's not like he can't, he can't really he's not pass. fluent. Yeah, he's not fluent in um like people. Yes, he's he's conversational in people. 
but he's not fluent. So every once in a while we run into his lack of fluency. For sure. But he picks up with them pretty quickly. He doesn't kill Abner because they shoot him. That's the only reason he doesn't right, he kill Right, he gets Ebby. interrupted. He gets interrupted. And then Kayla comes out and he's like, oh shit. Like he immediately recognizes there's something different about Kayla. Yeah, I like the foreshadowing. That, yeah. Okay, there's something about this character that is not necessarily like an aspect of reality. Yeah. Is different about her, but to um, to Coburn. Yeah. Kayla means something to Coburn. Yeah, almost immediately. Yeah. And she proposes the plan of like, okay, you provide protection and we will provide food and you don't kill us because this isn't a situation where you have unlimited sheep anymore. You need to be a shepherd. And he's like, yeah, I'm a fucking shepherd. I'll be the best fucking I'm shepherd. I'm the best fucking shepherd. Well, he threatens her a little bit first. And then well, he's yeah. like, listen up, sheeple. And he's like, you are my, you are now my flock. I am the boss, which is what I like. This is cream puff. Nobody fucking touches cream puff. And I'll sleep. I'll sleep where I want to sleep. And you guys have to wait for me. Great. Thanks. And I do love the foreshadowing dreams, too. Because we foreshadow where we're going to get with Coburn pretty immediately. Like, we see, we don't understand the significance of, like, the little girl with the blonde pigtails for a long time. But we see them. We see her. Because Kayla kind of reminds him of her. And this is where we start to get the split in Coburn where he is not just this one-dimensional monstrous character. We start to see that he is as much a victim of the monster as everybody else is. Because I do like that. Like, the hungrier he gets, the more insistent the voice gets. And it's, like, unhinged. Rip their arms off and beat them with it. Like I'm trying to remember. There was another another story where there was this completely unhinged voice. Wheel of Time? with um... I, th- There was that, but then there was... Um... It wasn't as visceral. Like there was, there's another voice that I remember minded of as like this wild, like violent chattering in the back of their head that's like as graphic and gory as Coburn's monster voice. But I can't remember it. I can't remember where it comes from. Yeah. Comes to you, let just interject. As usual. Yeah, as usual. But I do like I do like this portrayal of vampirism as like there is a compulsion to do these things. And he is actively fighting the compulsion to do what he wants. To It's kind of like uh, Dexter's Dark Passenger. Yeah, it's a little bit like a Dark Passenger where he is constantly compelled to kill them. It's not just a hunger thing. It's just like a, a craving violence thing. Yes. It's a craving for action a, a and the voice. Yeah. There's the voice. Like there's another personality in your head that's sharing control of your body. Right. And the more you feed it, the more you get to stay in control. Right. Yeah. And we seed a lot of what's going to be like, I mean, we seed everything almost immediately. He drops almost all of the main plot points right in the first like four or five chapters because we get the hunters. 
And then his first test as their shepherd is like, okay, we want to go out west. But the only way to get out west is to go along this highway. And there's a Walmart right by the highway, and that's where all the cannibals live. And they have these spike strips over the road. If we try to go, they'll shoot us, and they'll kill us, and they'll eat us. So that's why we're stuck here on the East Coast, and we want to go west. And he's like, why do you want to go west? But what for? And they're like, oh, well, there were missionaries that came from the west. And they came through the woods, but we don't want to abandon the, we don't want to abandon the the Winnebago. So we need your help. And he's like, oh, missionaries, really? You fell for that? That sounds like the cannibals sent people to lay down some stories that would motivate people to pass by the cannibals. Yeah. Because, and he says it, he's like, it's so obvious. Why don't they see it? Oh, because I think like a predator and they think like prey. And they tell him, no, it's from the Sons of Man. And he's like, oh, my God, and then he's, fucking Sons of Man. And then Coburn gets triggered. Yeah, Coburn's like, oh, fucking Sons of Man. No, and he, he no. nicknight flashbacks. Yeah. Well, we don't get the whole Son of Man flashback. We just know that at one point, I think, they that they hunted him. We don't get the full sense around this is it's what pretty, happened. It's pretty soon after she says the name Sons of Man. Is it we find out they cut off his middle finger? I don't think we find that out until after we meet the um, people in the 66 states. I'm pretty sure it's before that. I think it's shortly after the cannibal. Oh, well, we find out eventually some point in the book that um, the sons of man are the reason he was under the theater in the first place. Right. He can't quite remember for a long time. He, He describes it as like every time he tries, it's like turning on the light and the memories scatter like roaches. Yeah. Yeah. And he he basically got hunted by them. And they're like a blue collar group of people that got tired of being cult cult that got tired of being preyed on by monsters, specifically him, I guess, because he's like the only one. He's the only one they could track down. Yeah. And so they find him and they end up chasing him into this theater. He flips them off and the guy cuts his middle finger off. That's why he's missing his middle finger when when he he wakes wakes up. up. And then the theater explodes. Yeah. They said underneath of it. Yeah. They were thorough. They were very thorough. Yeah. They had, they didn't they had, hunt him down and like cut his head off, but that's okay. Right. Right. And it's fine. they they probably didn't know the full extent of how unkillable the he mechanics is? of how yeah. vampire vampires are cuz he gets um later somebody else like rams a wooden pole through another vampire like through their chest. And is like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And so it's like, no, you got to, just like zombies, you have to destroy the brain. Yeah. Yep. And anyway, so those are the sons of man. We get that sort of piecemeal throughout the entire book. But this is his first test as the shepherd is like, he has to stop the cannibals. And he's like, okay, I'll give you a signal. And they're like, what's the signal going to be? He's like, I don't know, a fucking signal. You'll figure it out. You'll know. You'll know. And so he ends up sneaking up on this Walmart. And the whole Walmart scene Whew. is um, traumatizing. <laughs> like we, we get some nice exploration of Coburn's skill set. Yes. Like he, you know, moving, sneaking, um, you know, seeing in the dark, all that stuff. And and he, he can be cautious because he's like, oh, there's the front door. Nah, I'll go around back. Ah, uh, yes. Vampires going around back. The thing. As a thing. 
And so he goes around back. Ah, it's all blocked up. But then, yeah, he hears somebody sleeping. He's like, ah, I'll surprise him and get him to open the door to check out the noise that he just heard. Yeah. I'm good at this stuff. I'm so fucking good at this. But then he gets almost immediately captured. Like, he gets his legs blown off. He's He rampages through, like, five people in the Walmart. Yeah. It's just he gets snuck up on by the guy in a wheelchair, I think because he doesn't make footstep sounds. Yeah. Then he gets his legs blown off. Yeah. And at some point he loses, I don't know, it's, eventually he ends up just a torso. I think they blow his legs off and then they put him in a dog kennel and they put him on the roof. Yes, they put him on the roof and he's, <laughs> like all of his extra blood's leaked out. So he doesn't have... He can't regrow his legs. Yeah. He can't regrow anything. He can't get any surges of strength. And I like how... His body isn't any more durable than a human's in general. Right. But he can reinf- actively reinforce or strengthen it with blood by you by like burning blood. Yeah. And and so he has the same limitations of like leverage and just like yeah, he can't pull so hard because his tendons would literally rip. Right. Um, and he could make himself pull that hard, but then, you know, his arm would like rip off at the wrist himself. or something. Yeah. And so he has, he has some constraints based on the fact that he was a human first. Yeah. And he's in a human body that's reinforced with blood. Yeah. And so he gets into the cage and it's like a solid, like reinforced metal cage a human would not be able to escape from this, so he cannot escape from this in right. his current state. Yeah, and but he does the key thing. He's like, I have the key on my tongue. Yeah, <laughs> 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 um, yeah most of the time, I, probably most of the books I read, the characters are either too moral or too proud yeah. to do... What is necessary to survive? But Coburn is... No, Coburn okay, so is neither one of those things. <laughs> one of the, one of the compl- best compliments I've gotten like in my career is somebody who told me, you're scrappy. Like you, you yeah. just use whatever you have around you and make it work. Right? Coburn is like... He's pretty scrappy. fucking scrappy. Yeah. And he's not proud. No. He will... His pride will not stop him from doing something that will ensure his survival. Right. He might, his pride might stop him from doing something that would embarrass him in front of like people when he's in a like safe fed place. Yeah. When he, when he has room to, care about being embarrassed yeah okay he chooses pride but he's always yes. choosing it he could he's not married to it he exactly. could drop it in so, a heartbeat oh yeah. great i need to get somebody to literally bite my tongue yeah i need to bite somebody's or tongue. i need yeah i, I need, need to get to somebody stick, to stick their tongue in anything, my mouth stick something in here oh this grungy dude in the cage next to me yeah yeah let's we're doing this yeah and it's a very predator like I don't care what you think about me. I intend to kill you. Your thoughts on this matter are irrelevant. Right. Like, um, 
like large cats, if they get caught in a trap, they'll literally l- chew their leg off to survive. Right. Right. Coburn will do all of that. Right. To survive. Yeah. yeah. So he does like the that. like huck, huck, the on my pure pure pragmatism. Yes, he's like extremely it. pragmatic. It's a different character, very different from the last couple of books that we've read together because we did Paul Atreides, just a super thoughtful, super like okay, let me let me rifle through all of the potential consequences of the action that I'm just about to do and make sure that nothing absolutely horrific is going to happen if I do this. And then we read Babel, which was like every character was thinking in three different languages, four steps ahead and five steps back in another two languages. And then you have this character that's like, I need somebody to stick something through this bar so I can bite it. Hmm. I've got a key on my tongue. And the guy's I like, think the other part of Coburn that I like is he's always winging it. Yeah. Oh, he's absolutely always winging it because the consequences of failure are death. But the consequences I mean, but of as not a trying person, are death. He doesn't, he doesn't strategize. No, there's he's no strategy. He's all tactics, no strategy. Yeah. So he, it, it works. He yeah. gets the guy to stick something through and he bites it and he gets just enough that he's able to get out, get a gun, and he explodes their kerosene tank. Their yep. fuel tank. And they, the people in the Winnebago take that as their signal, which it kind of is, which this is kind of a pivot point. You wouldn't think that Coburn legless preparing to like shoot this thing is a pivot point, but it is because he can use the gun to save himself or he can use the gun to signal them. Right. To and his he has own to detriment. Choose. Right. He yeah. has to choose whose survival am I prioritizing? Right. Because the sun's coming up. He's literally, right. he is about to burst into flames and he has, does he kill this guy and save himself or does he blow up the tank? So he blows up the tank because it will critically weaken them. He'll critically weaken the cannibals so that his, his sheeple can get through down the highway. And he's just hoping, ah, I've survived everything else so far. Right. I, <laughs> if I get to define my safety rating... <laughs> as I haven't died, ended my existence yet, I still have a 100%, 100% safety rating. rating. Yep. Isn't it great when you can or both? Su- uh, sorry, I didn't mean to use the word safety oh, there. Oh, did you not? Uh, oh. I meant to say success rating. Oh, okay. Got you. Yeah. Then we cut to our people in the Winnebago because they're trying to get down the highway. And so they're picking up the the, the spike strips. And this is still tricky because some of the cannibals are still shooting at them. There's still zombies coming for them. There's a lot happening. Um, and then they're going to, they, they do, they get through it. I mean, no part of this book feels easy. You never feel like, oh, that was too easy. But they end up getting through it. They, you know, they have to shoot a couple of zombies and we find out we never drive over zombies. Like we cover that. That's like a rule. We don't drive over zombies. And then they come, now they have to make a decision. We're supposed to be waiting for Coburn. But if we don't wait for Coburn, we may be able to lose him. And um, Gil is like, yeah, we're not waiting for Coburn. He's an asshole. He's going to kill us. We're going to leave him. He's literally a monster? He's literally a monster. And I really don't think that throwing our hopes in with yet another monster is how we get through this 
We used him for what we needed him for, and now we're going to leave. Right. We're going to say, man, we were lucky to have just survived interacting with that monster the way we did. And then it's just gravy, the fact that we got a monster to help us get through this situation we wouldn't have gotten through. And we're just going to accept that as enough yeah enough risk for the benefit we got out of it now we're gonna go yeah we're gonna cut that risk out of our lives and continue on right and they do they just leave coburn behind and the only one who's really upset is kayla yeah because kayla's like no we promised we wait and gil's like yeah i don't i don't really care right we have the like Abner's a little idealistic and naivete of Kayla, Mm -hmm. where she made a promise and she's upset that her dad like broke his promise. Yeah. But then she also has this almost prophetic sense that like we need she knows she has a feel of what's going to be happening and what needs to happen for survival what does paul call that he has a word for like his future sense i don't remember i've forgotten it now uh but she has this similar sense to paul yeah where he just an intuitive sense of the future like what steps need to be taken to get the optimal and kayla knows that coburn needs to be with them yeah and so she's also upset because Without Coburn, she knows in a prophetic sense that they're going to die without him. Right. And so we cut back to Coburn. Sort of. We cut back to Ambrosia, the cannibal queen, who is set up on some pallets in the back. And kind of of remarking about, oh, like, here's here's this meal laid out before me of Coburn. Cooked Coburn. Cooked Coburn. (laughs) And... (laughs) I, I got to say, a lot of shit happens in this book. A lot of gross shit happens in this book. But this, the ambrosia scene. The ambrosia eating Coburn scene but is probably I thought it was interesting that ambrosia was like self-aware enough to like, she's narrating to herself. Oh, yeah. My people said like. Yeah, it wasn't even the kerosene flame that cooked him. Yeah. He just looked like he was cooking from being out in the sun. Yeah, don't they call it spontaneous so, human compression? Um, her her grandpa does. He's like, yeah, yeah they, they call they that use spontaneous human compression. <laughs> not, com- not combustion. Convection. Right? Convection. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so she knows that there's some... Well, she knows there's something weird going on. Yeah. Right? She even like recites to herself oh yeah they shot his legs off shot him in the chest a bunch yeah and he's still alive alive enough to break out of his cage get somebody's gun and shoot the kerosene tank and then it's not even the kerosene flame explosion that cooks him they say it's like the sun was cooking him. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, here's this thing in front of me that's the result of all this, like, 
stuff I just said about this like body. Yeah. And now I'm going to eat it. And I think that and it's not contradictory or anything. No. It just illustrates how far gone she is that her sensibilities don't like give her a warning sign. Hey, maybe you shouldn't eat this. Yeah. And one thing one thing I thought might happen was if only for a short time is that from eating Coburn would Ambrosia turn into a vampire? No. But it doesn't happen. I think because Coburn doesn't have any spare blood. Right. Yeah. He doesn't have any blood to give. At this point, he is a torso with a head on it. I don't even think he has arms at this no, point. No, he doesn't have arms. No. Cause so she goes to eat his tongue and she ends up, I think, cutting her lip. Or she cuts herself. Somehow she he gets some of her blood. And he ends up eating her tongue. Oh, no, she he bites her tongue because she sticks her tongue in yeah, his mouth. she sticks That's her tongue in his mouth. Yeah, to get his tongue out. To pull his, t- to like suck his tongue into her mouth. Yeah. So she can bite it off. Right. And when she sticks her tongue in his mouth, he bites it. Yeah. And, stu- and he sucks on it. Right. Well, he ends up eating his way through her chest cavity. Like down her neck. <laughs> And like worm wiggling his way into her like chest abdominal cavity and just feasting. <laughs> feasting. Thank you, God. And then he emerges like I think they they use several disgusting metaphors for oh, yeah, him they, emerging from her like and they, burst chest. They talk about like his body moving around inside of hers, like under the skin, <laughs> like the Chuck, are you okay? <laughs> there's just a sheet draped over her body because yeah. she, there's no clothes that'll fit her. And so it says through the sheet, you can see the skin like bulging and rippling and writhing. And then he bursts forth. Yeah. As like, he's got to be like naked, like he is naked. pink skin. Yeah. Like fresh human body. Bursting forth from Ambrosia, and Ambrosia's grandpa is like, "Well, shit. <laughs> At least Ambrosia's gone, man. Like he's so they're all, traumatized. Yeah, they're all just very. That he's just yeah. He's detached from the emotional significance of what's happening, and he's like, well, like I I knew she was gonna be a real problem eventually, and yeah, her appetites, man, they really screwed us this time." But uh, I'll uh, I'll just ride this one out because man, those zombies are dumb. Yeah, and and so he goes and locks himself in in the bathroom. Yeah, but the hunters are there, and they are but not the dumb. Hunters are there, right? And Coburn ends up getting like pants and a shirt and a jacket, but he doesn't get shoes for like the rest of the book. My favorite part about the scene is when we revisit it after Kayla is in his head. And Kayla's like, there's a lot of shit in here, John. Or J.W., I think she calls yeah, him. There's... Yeah, she calls him J.W. To, to evoke the man he was. Right. She's like, there's a lot of shit in here, J.W. She's like, that thing you did with the cannibal queen at the Walmart, that's pretty fucking gross. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> kind of <laughs> was. <laughs> and even for 
even for Coburn, because he he spent his entire vampire existence in New York City with this like nice apartment. Yeah. Uh infinite food supply, easy with at easy access. Yeah. As a vampire, he's never really had to struggle. Right. So even for him, that was gross. This is the most traumatic experience of his existence. It may be to illustrate what would happen if he wasn't in control of himself at all. That like you may think he's monstrous, but that's actually him not doing what he wants to do, right. which and is literally tunnel his way through your body and burst out. Like through this, your stomach. this is what a vampire is capable of. Yeah, and from that you can extrapolate. Oh, like. Let's imagine a vampire like 500 years ago moving from town to town, like in secret. Yeah. How violent their life must have been. Yeah. And Coburn talks a lot about what he had to do or what his you know tactics were for surviving, getting food in the city. And you know, he would just hoodoo voodoo some girl from the club yeah out to a room and then you know drink some blood from her and then kind of erase her memories of that and set her back sometimes you know release her back into the wild and he said he did that most of the time because it's, it's hard to get rid of a body yeah it takes too long to get rid of a body getting rid of a it's, body is that's a lot of work and i'm lazy <laughs> yeah yeah basically he's like no that takes too much work i think i'll just I'll I'll take from a few, but he's like, but sometimes you kill him, and then you got to get rid of a body. Yeah, very unremorseful. Right, it, it's it's super pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, like meh, it happens sometimes. Can't be blamed. But then he gets out. He like he meets up with um Ginger, who's yeah on in the, the other roof. cage. Yeah, who manages to survive in the other cage, and he smells like soap. That's why he likes him. He's like, oh, who smells like soap in the zombie apocalypse? Um, Danny, which is actually his name, but Ginger and he frees him and he's like, okay, well I got to get, I got to go after my friends, but I don't know how to drive. I've lived in Brooklyn my entire life. Like right. I don't know how to fucking drive. And so Danny's like, I can, he doesn't say anything cause he's mute, but he's, he's like, yeah, I can do it. And so they end up on like a dirt bike yep. and they get to where the Winnebago should be. And it's not there. And what Coburn is like, those motherfuckers. And Coburn is like legitimately like, upset upset yeah betrayed because he finally tried to do something nice for somebody and this is what happens right he did he actually did something like mildly altruistic because he chose them he right blew up the the tank he blew up the fuel tank he in his mind he chose them right he literally died for them yeah right and if he wasn't a vampire he would have been dead. Yeah. Right? He made that investment in the relationship. He followed through on that level of commitment, and they couldn't even fucking wait for him. Right. He's legitimately upset. And he's like, and they took my fucking dog because <laughs> they got <laughs> To top it off. <laughs> to top it off. So they hop back on the dirt bike, and he's like, we're going hunting. And so they end up chasing it down. Well, he says like a bloodhound. He sniffs out the way and he tells Danny where to go. Yeah. And they find the Winnebago and it's been knocked over. And he's like, 
See what happens. See what happens when you don't keep okay, me around. Okay, so you you made that comment when Rachel kept checking in on me when I was reading the book. Where are you at now? Where are you at now? Yeah, and and I didn't see a line where he actually like made that remark what about, about see what happens when you try to go, you know, whatever without me. Well, he's disappointed. He's yeah. like, oh, he's yeah. upset. He's like, seriously. You leave me, and you he's don't like, even leave I, me like, like well. I'm coming. He's like you left me. I'm hunting you because I am betrayed. I'm gonna like get some vengeance. Yeah. For this betrayal, and then he gets there, and he's like, "Shit, they're in danger. Now I gotta save them." And it like diffuses. Well, he's not gonna save them right away. He's like, kind of yeah. serves them right. And right, he, and he's yeah, he stews on it. I skipped. Yeah, but. yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Is it's it's not an immediate like, oh no, where are they? I have to help them. It's like, motherfucker, they wouldn't be in this situation if I was with them. And now, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know if I feel like saving them anymore. It's not even worth the energy to continue hunting them, because whatever. Like I'm I'm pragmatic, right? And maybe I'll just write them off and. Go do my own thing now. Right. He's like, whatever. Sun's coming up. I'm going to go take a nap. Danny, just fucking leave. He's like Ginger. He calls him because he doesn't know his name because the guy can't talk. And he never asks him to write it down or anything. He just makes up a name for him. Right. He's like, leave. Whatever. Don't. Uh, doesn't he like threaten him? Oh, yeah. He scares them off. This, yeah. Um, this is kind of a trope of usually it's an animal. Yeah. That's following you. Um, But this happens a lot in... In human dramas yeah. where you have to – usually it's for when the when the protagonist is like, them staying with me is going to hurt them. Yeah. Um, because they're going to want to stay by my side and assist me with whatever, like, dangerous thing I have and to do. And they're just a liability. So I have to – I have to convince them that I actually don't like them so that they will leave. Yeah. But then they always come back. Right. In this case, he just doesn't want the fucking baggage. Yeah. Of Danny. <laughs> yeah. And so he's like threatening Danny, trying to scare him away. And he does. He leaves. He, he leaves. And then he gets out of the RV the next night. And Danny's there. <laughs> right. Danny's like, I didn't go far. It's fine. Uh, no, but the something happens when he's in the RV. He has a dream. Yes. This and I like that he starts like remarking that I don't have dreams. I'm a vampire. I'm dead. Yeah. I don't have dreams. What the fuck is going on? Well, this I is wish when, these dreams would stop. Yeah, This is when he's talking to Kayla and he's like, kind of feels like you guys deserved this because you left me. And I don't owe you finding you. I don't owe you rescuing you. I don't owe you shit. But what's in the room behind you? And she's like, don't worry about that. Well, uh, uh, isn't that the next one? This is the one where he sees someone that he thinks is, um, what's her name? Kayla. Kayla. He thinks it's Kayla and Kayla, but Kayla's like. Has pigtails. All bloody. Yeah. Well, it's he's... like, you didn't save me. And he's like, and then Kayla's like, what did you let happen to me? No, this that's a previous dream. Okay. This is one where he's he's talking to Kayla. 
and there's something in the room yes. behind her. And every time he tries too. to look through into the other room, like her arm blocks his view or the shadows fall. Yeah, he's like, this wrong. shouldn't be happening. He's, like, like, he's always aware that he's in a dream. Right. And he's like, I should be able to just look in there. This is my dream. And she's like, I don't know what to tell I'm you. I'm bigger Maybe. than you. You're smaller than me. How can you block the doorway? <laughs> right. And finally, she's like, we're in a farmhouse just down the way. There's zombies all around. She oh, gives him right. a breakdown of what's going on. She's like, but you got to come and you got to save right. us. And, and, and it he's was... like, I don't got to do shit, little girl. I don't got to come save you. You didn't have to wait for me. Sounds like I don't have to come save you. But what's in the room behind you? And so finally he regains control of his own dream. And he's able to see what's in the room. But we don't find out what's in the room. He just looks in and he goes, hold tight. I'm coming. Yeah. And I really like... Coburn's character arc. Yes. Like his, not necessarily redemption story, but it's more like. Oh, no. His he, full. He never per- gets a. Right. His, yeah. his full person, like the Coburn that we've been seeing is just the mask that he's been wearing to distract himself from yeah, the traumatic memory that he has repressed. Right. And. And so the character development of Coburn is not a redemption story. He's no. not becoming a better person. It's more he's awaken he's waking up the who he actually is. Yeah. And letting go of this trauma repression mask that he's been wearing. Yeah. Just to survive as a vampire and keep doing the things he needs to do as a vampire. And so, like later, when uh, when Kayla's in his head, he mentions that the the voice, the monster voice, and the hunger are like way toned down. Yeah. And I was thinking, he says, um, like Kayla's presence made those go down, but I think it's the fact that he. He followed through on, like, sacrificing himself, like, full awareness, full deliberateness, sacrificing himself for Kayla. Yeah. Or for, kind of for Kayla and Gil, but really just for Kayla. hmm And that kind of discarded, like... The last pieces of the mask. Yeah. And the mask was amplifying the monster voice. Yeah. And so even if Kayla wasn't there, he his monster voice would be reduced. He integrated his shadow. He, yes. Yes. He integrated his shadow. Yes. If you don't know what we're talking about, you don't know what we're talking about. Um, psychologically speaking, you have a shadow, a shadow self. Your, your negative impulses. Yes. And you can view them as separate or you can integrate your shadow and recognize right. that it's natural it's, to have negative impulses. It's things about yourself, like possibilities of what you could be that you haven't fully explored, usually because you've suppressed them. And that can be, that can be, I wanted to be like an artist or I wanted to, um, Whatever. It, it can be like violent things. It could be whatever. And and when you hide that, when you like when you have this 
uh, like a, a real desire to do something and you push that down and just suppress it within yourself, it doesn't go away. It continues existing in your mind and growing. And mm -hmm. all you're doing is letting it grow in an uncoordinated way and it gets bigger and eventually it pops up against your will. And so like actually letting yourself experience that and kind of existentially exploring, oh, I actually could do this. Um, I'm actually capable of violence. I'm capable of, um, you know, being a marathon runner and it can be anything. Yeah. It, when you integrate that, you, you kind of discard this wild thing that's just moving around in your subconscious. Yeah, you actually process it. You right. actually get and, to process it and file it away neatly instead yes. of um, letting it become a pressure cooker. And you kind of add it to your toolbox rather than, you know, let the crazy rat live in your walls. Right. Crazy rat living in your walls. That's Coburn's monster for the majority of the first book anyway. But I think this is my favorite pivot point for his character. The like, hold tight. I'm coming. Yes. Right. Because now he's aware of the fact that he's choosing, like, with the with the Walmart thing, he thought he was just going to get in and out without, with minimal risk to himself. Right. So it was very little investment for him going into the Walmart. Yeah. And the escalation was just, he, he was cocky and reckless and... If he had been more cautious, he probably would have been fine. And then the moment of choice between I shoot the guy with, I have this gun, I can shoot the guy that's about to shoot me and then drink his blood and recover and leave. Mm -hmm. But that will not generate the distraction and signal to help my hurt, my uh, flock. Yeah. Or... I can use the gun to shoot the kerosene and help my flock. Yeah. But sacrificing myself. That was like in the crisis, you know, decision in the moment kind of just instinctive action. Yeah. Where he chose the flock. But this is the, now he's, he has the time to actually think through it and. Yeah be conscious of what he's doing yeah. of the decision he's making. And even with his hyper pragmatism, he still chooses the flock. Right. And so he can't do that and hold on to this level of impartiality. Yeah. Uh, that he's been. He can't just keep, he doing. can't keep yeah. pretending he's just Coburn, the right. monster. Once he does this. And so they end up taking their, um, he flips up the Winnebago. Oh yeah. He burns he's through like, basically all his blood. Check out this super shit. <laughs> is what he says to Danny. He's like, watch this like, shit. And he props it back up. Once again, he could have taken a moment and like <laughs> no. planned this and been a little, had a little bit more efficient use of his blood. Yeah. 
No. But... I love how impulsive this character is. Yes. Love it, love it, love it. Because usually we create these male characters that are like hyper-competent, hyper-intelligent, super thoughtful, very like, I'm going to work my way through this. I have all kinds of ninja. I have a certain set of skills. They're going to get me through. No. Coburn's like, well, I need the Winnebago up. Check out this shit, Danny. I can I can lift it all by myself. Right. It's like the opposite of Batman. So like yeah. the, the trope about Batman is... Batman plans through every possible scenario, and in every possible scenario, he has a plan for him winning. Yeah. At minimal risk to himself. And so when Batman's like, okay, I have time, and then I choose to do this, it's going to go exactly how Batman plans it. Yeah. Even if the the viewer, reader is unaware it's you know like the heist stuff they say okay here's what we're doing but you don't see what the plan's going to be you only see the outcome and you get the kind of twist surprise right clever thing that they figured out whatever coburn doesn't have that clever twist surprising no plan whizzy wig for coburn yeah. what you see is what you get very much i like it and so they end up lighting the dirt bike on fire and using it to distract the zombies. And then he has like a torch and he he's trying to get the zombies to chase him through the woods. I think this part is hysterical because he's trying to get the zombies to chase him, but they're not fast. They're too slow. So he keeps out running them and having to go back. And he's like, come on this way. Let's go. Come on, zombies. And I always like it when the zombies are manageable. They're manageable in a, like, if I'm on open ground, I can handle a number of zombies, a right, certain number. Over we, a certain number, they get... We get several point-of-view characters that describe the zombie menace as an environmental hazard. Yeah. Where with just a little bit of preparation, with a little bit of thinking, and like as long as you're like a healthy, hum mobile human, like... The vampire, the sorry, the zombies are actually not that much of a risk. Right. It's only when you're unprepared or careless. Yeah. And everybody's in this farmhouse. And we get a bit of point of view from Kayla, which we've gotten some Kayla in, intermixed into it anyway. But we find out like Lily got bit. She gave her some of her blood, so she's not going to turn into a zombie. But the, the damage is still there. She still got bit. And I think this is where we find out what makes Kayla special. Or maybe they said it it's before. It's because when she invites Coburn to stay with them the first time, Gil yells at her. And she has a little bit of inner monologue about how they know she's special because she gave Lily her blood previously. Right. And it yeah. fixed her. Her kind of flashback is that Lily got bit. She had like a prophetic sense that. Just give her her blood. Just like. Prick your finger and stick it in Lily's mouth. Yeah, um, because your your blood is special, and and it didn't like you know uh, superpower heal Lily, it but just, it stopped the zombie infection. Right, and that's when she storms off into the woods and passes out. That's right, and she gets bit, and then Coburn rescues her, and he's like, "Please keep your hands and arms inside the ride at all times," yeah. and runs her <laughs> runs her back to the. Winnebago. Yeah. Um, and that's our first, like, oh, okay. He's willing to do things for Kayla 
that he's not willing to do for anyone else. Because he right. goes out and rescues her, knowing full well she is not a viable food source. Because he tells right. her, I'm not even interested in you. You smell bad. What's wrong with you? Right. And I think that's that's probably the initial thing that stops him from immediately drinking her blood when she's trying she's negotiating the deal with him is they go off into yeah. the field and he's like you know i could just like kill you here right now and then go back and kill, kill her, everybody else yeah um like even if i tell you yeah i'm making a deal with you um i i can break that agreement at any time i have no qualms about yeah uh, you know, eating my words. What are you going to do about it? Right. And then he's kind of like, yeah, you I? are not dealing with an honorable character. Right. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, he's like, <clears throat> actually, I don't, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You don't smell good. What's wrong with you? And she's like, oh, multiple myeloma. You know, I've, I've, I've literally have cancer in my bones. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. But fast forwarding back to the farmhouse, we find out that Lily got bit like in the back of the ankle. So it hurt her Achilles tendon. She'll probably walk, but she may not walk correctly ever again. Right. She's wounded, but uh, because she got some of Kayla's blood. She's not going to turn into a zombie. She's not going to turn into a zombie. Okay. Yeah. And then they end up, of course, he rescues them through a series of events, but he accidentally also creates more hunters. Oops. And he's like, I'm not dealing with this. And he just runs away. (laughs) Just like everything else, I'm running away. I'm going to run away. Just like like all of my other problems, I'm running away from them. And then we montage for a little bit because they're traveling for a while. And we get a little bit of like, well, first Coburn confronts Gil because it was Gil's decision to leave him behind. And he's like, the only reason I'm not killing you is because you didn't hurt Cream Puff. (laughs) But he ends up breaking Gil's fingers. Yes, I, I do like that. Um, as a consistent part of the Coburn character, yeah, is that he? That feels like something uh, Harry Dresden would do. Yeah, like I recognize the value in you being alive, but you hurt me. Yeah, you. It may not look like it because I have a whole fresh new body. Yes. Do you know <laughs> and- what I did? Do you know what I went through for you? But I'm going to hurt you back. Yeah. And I'm going to hurt you back in a way that doesn't completely disable you, but it conveys my emotions to you. Yeah. And it reminds the reader that Coburn is not the good guy. Coburn is not a moral character. He may have just done a good thing, but that doesn't make him the good guy. Right. He is not a good dude. He's not the stereotypical moral character. Yeah. Yeah. And then we montage a little bit. And this is where we get like, he's hungry all the time because he can't feed the way that he wants to. And so the monster voice is like insistent and like maddening. And it's making him cranky. And Gil is upset because Gil blames himself. And no one is dispelling him of this myth because it's true. He really did. This really is his fault. Yeah. And I, I don't know. The only like thing that I wish we would quit harping on is the fact that Gil is having sex with Cecilia. Like every time we see anything from anybody's point of view, we have to make a comment about how Gil is, quote, laying pipe to this like right. 20 year yeah. old girl. 
and that's probably uh that's probably rooted in like how old Chuck Wendig was when he wrote, when he this. wrote this. Yeah, I love how everybody thinks Gil is older. He's like, oh, old man. He's like, I'm not even that old. He's like, <laughs> I'm like 50. I'm only like 50. He's like, I don't know, maybe I look older. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. At one point uh, when he's with the whole like troop of kids. Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, but um, if I was all cleaned up, I probably wouldn't look that old. But yeah. with all the grime and just stress and yeah. wounds right, and stuff. Fair. I Maybe probably look you know, in my 70s. Okay, fair okay. fair point, yeah. children. Yeah. And then we get to probably the second most unhinged part in the entire book, which is the 66 states. Oh, man. I was not prepared for this. Rachel did <laughs> Some of the things Rachel kind of... Rachel will be like reading a book and... I'll be sitting on the couch next to her and she'll be like, I, I need to read you this paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't get any of those sneak peek paragraphs no. about uh, King Thuglo. No. And, King Thuglo. Wow. Because <laughs> the Winnebago breaks down and uh, they have to walk, which I love this part. Because he's like, Lily can't walk. And they're like, you can't fucking kill Lily. And he's like, I'm going to carry her. Would you fucking calm down? Like, I'm going to, I'm just saying she can't walk. I'm not leaving her behind. I'm going to carry her. And Abner's like, what about me? And he's like, mm -mm, you did that to yourself. You got to walk. <laughs> Poor Abner. <laughs> he's like, who is still fat in the after the zombie apocalypse? It's I don't a, know. It's a glandular disorder. Ooh. So they end up walking. To the nearest town. But when they get there, it's stripped clean. The zombies are all killed and piled oh, up in the one, middle. One note I wanted to make. Okay. We we encounter several, like, large, like, maybe not obese, but, you know, chubby characters. And every time we see someone, like, overweight, that is a, like, secret signal. Yeah. That... Oh, this is a parasitic individual mm. that is um, like the guy by the river. Yeah. Uh, that is the cannibal. Yeah. That's, you know, enticing people in and killing them. And Ambrosia. Ambrosia. And it's always somebody like um, sociopathic or parasitic on. Um, yeah, on the people, type of people, people that they can, encounter that can flourish in after a zombie apocalypse. Yes, yeah, and but not Abner. Okay, that, that's where I'm getting. Okay. <laughs> uh, but not Abner. No, right with Abner, it's I don't know something's up with Abner. Yeah, but uh, that reminds me of in the Wheel of Time, in the first book, The Eye of the World, when Rand and Matt are. Um, traveling by themselves on their way to um, Berlon or whatever the mm -hmm. the city with the the castle and uh, they they have Rand has the flute the yeah. flute Rand has the flute and he's kind of he got some training on how to play it and from Tom Marilyn yeah and and Matt has kind of has some like sleight of hand stuff that he does and so they. 
they use that to as make they're money. traveling, they do that to pay their way through staying at inns. Yeah. And uh, Robert Jordan does a good job of like describing the stereotypical innkeeper as this like large, jovial, charismatic person. Yeah. Oh, is this uh, the one where they meet a skinny innkeeper? And they, they meet a skinny innkeeper. Yeah. And and that innkeeper betrays them. Right. And so Matt ends up with this rule in his head. Never trust a skinny never innkeeper. Never trust a skinny innkeeper. Yeah. Um, based on this one experience. Well, I mean, he had experiences with lots of innkeepers. And then the first skinny innkeeper, uh, he got betrayed. Right. And so that becomes a rule in his head, like throughout the rest of the series, which he like accurately applies this rule a couple times um, as they're traveling around. And he's like, oh, no, no, that's a skinny innkeeper. We don't trust skinny innkeepers. Mm -mm. But I like that parallel. Yeah. Like in a in a functioning society, the innkeepers are all charismatic and overweight yeah but in the zombie apocalypse only only the psychopaths and sociopaths are charismatic and overweight right yeah it's uh i think it's 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 a low-level heuristic that works yeah yeah except abner he's just abner he's got like a secret stash of candy he's just like I don't know. He's exactly what you would imagine if you had, um, like a sedentary, a sedentary software developer developer who spent his entire life playing video games and working on the computer, and then all of a sudden, they have to go out. And usually, when we have those characters, they're like the character from World War Z, where they end up becoming this like battle-hardened warrior. Right. And instead, like that's not everybody. Everybody isn't going to go from. Like, I literally can barely walk out to get the mail to I am, like, cut and I can kill anyone with a baseball bat. It's not real life. Some people are going to be, some people are going to struggle. And poor little, poor Abner struggles. And it's funny because Coburn gives him shit for it all the time. And he's like, walking will do you good. And so he ends up carrying Lily for, like, eight miles or however far they have to walk. And when they get to this town... Um, it's empty. It's All, been stripped. Every, it's been completely stripped. The zombies are killed. And then there's like graffiti all over everything. That's like brother thug, thug low. And the, the like church signs where you can uh, rearrange the letters yeah. are all, all have different messaging about thug low or. Yeah. The 66 yeah. states. Thug low ain't nobody's bitch. Yeah. Yeah. And the 66 states. And they're like, what? There's not 66 states, though. There's only 50. And Gil's like, it's because it's Route 66. Get it? This is Route 66. Have you not seen the Cars franchise? And then he starts singing the song. And they're all like, would you shut up? But they end up walking to the next town. Or they're going to try to walk to the next town. But instead, they are met with a wall. Yeah, they get get to the next town. No, they don't. They get interrupted by the wall. Right. And the, like, door slides open and a Humvee comes out. And this is when we meet the entire um, Juggalo army, I guess you might want to say, where it's, like, a gang of people. But they, I love the part that they all have these made-up names. They're, like, Dope Fiend and... 
right. crackhead. And, and, and most of them are like committed to the character. But not all of them. And I like the point of view care, uh, scene that we get with the one guard at the gate. And he's yeah. like, oh. <laughs> like, I, don't yeah, I think like he, that he name. uses his, his own name to himself and he's like, oh, wait, no, it's like this made up. Yeah, it's so wild. It's and the clown makeup and yeah, Coburn's always smelling grease paint. Yeah, because they're all wearing grease paint. Yeah, one of my biggest pet peeves in post-apocalyptic movies, novels, stories, comic books, anywhere you find it, is the aggressively competent asshole dude who carves out a little society for himself and ends up ruining the plot. Ruining the, it happened in Vesper, it happened in The Walking Dead, it happens in pretty much every post-apocalyptic zombie or otherwise, is you get this one dude who likes to be king of his little fucking world, and he just fucks everything up. And it's he disrupts always, the hero's journey. It's always like fundamentalist Christian vibes. Sometimes, but it's always just like, I've always wanted to be king. I've got plenty of little tread on, don't tread on me stickers. And now nobody's going to tread on me because I'm king and I'm not giving it up for anything, even if it means the world gets saved. So right. usually they interrupt the hero's journey. And we have that. We have the setup for it completely. Right. For because, that trope. Yes. Because we interrupt the hero's journey. They get taken to Into meet this Brother little autonomous Thuglo. kingdom. Yeah. He's even called the king. We're rolling right to it. And then we find out. That King Brother Thuglow is just like a, he's just a stoner dude who somehow. He's a failure to launch stoner dude. Who somehow lucked into being like leader of this, right. leader he, of this. He bluffed his way into like being a you know charismatic visionary leader. Yeah. And people were so desperate for any source of authority that they, they latched onto him. Yeah. In a you know, delusional way, but it it caught on like it was it was self sustaining enough, yeah, that it worked. But he's absolutely not that character, right. which I love because we we he played doesn't chicken. actually run anything. We played chicken with that trope, and it, in the best way we could play chicken with that trope. Where right, right when we got to the point where. I mean, he even, I mean, he even sends, he splits the party. He sends the characters off. You know, he, Kayla and Cecilia are going to go be hookers, I guess. I think that's what he calls them. And like, Gil's going to get killed. They're going to, you know, they're going to shoot Gil. Because he, he attacked. Yeah. Yeah. And then I forget what's going to happen to Abner. Doesn't really matter. And then he keeps Cream Puff. Yep. And they think Coburn has abandoned them. Because Coburn like sneaks through the gate, he tells he puts his finger over his lips to tell Kayla to be quiet, and then he just disappears. And she's like, "Fucking Coburn, he disappeared again." <laughs> and then we have like a really weird series of events. So the Sons of Man are coming because we find out that the Sons of Man's like kingdom is at war with the sixty six states because the sixty six states is in an old air force. And that Face. is the trope, like, fiefdom. Yes. Where it's the hyper-competent, like, toxically masculine character. Yeah. That's assembled this 
community, right? This self-sustaining community of yeah, they have they have whatever they yeah, everything operates nice and cleanly, but they're very like authoritarian, right? And they they know that Thuglo has a lot of um, resources at this Air Force Base. Yeah, Bricker. Isn't that the guy's name? Brickert. Brickert. Benjamin Brickert. Yeah. Yeah. So Benjamin Brickert is the leader of the Sons of Man. And he wants and the resources. Benjamin Brickert is the guy who blew up cut Coburn. off and Coburn's up. finger. Yeah, and took it. And took it. And yes. yes. And he's I a, really liked that twist. Had a, yes. I didn't tell you about it at all. Nope. I did so good. But um he wants he basically wants the jet fuel. Like there's jet fuel and munitions at the Air Force Base. Yeah. And that's what he wants. And they won't give it up. But and they keep thinking they're just gonna be able to ride in there and take what they want, but they're just organized enough that they keep them from being able to do it. So they're right. It's like um in Let's say in, in the engineering field, fields, a lot of times you have a manager that doesn't, isn't like a technical person. Yeah. A non-technical manager who's in charge of like a group of individual contributors that are, you know, technical experts. They're, they're the subject matter experts. They're the technical know-how. They produce the solutions, whatever. And you can end up in these situations where the non-technical manager thinks that they know more than the people they're managing yeah. about the about what their subordinates do for their day-to-day -day responsibilities. And if they try to micromanage their um, their direct reports, those direct reports are really going to be like limited in what they produce because it's rather than telling, you can tell your direct reports, okay, you do this task this way. Yeah. And they, they'll kind of figure it out. Or you can say, we need something that, you know, performs this behavior or achieves this goal or provides this, um, this service, whatever. And then say, go figure out how to do it. And I don't know. You're the, you're literally the expert in this. You figure it out. And in the second situation, the man, the non-technical manager, they only need to be able to kind of measure. Does the final product work? Yeah. But when you have, when you give a lot of autonomy to your direct reports, they can come up with interesting solutions. Right. They may not be efficient. But they're effective. But they're effective. Yeah. They're usually effective. It may take longer for them to finish it. They may not, like, you may not get a lot of status updates because there's not a lot of, like, metrics along the way because it's it's not a known path to be traveled. Yeah. And Thuglo inadvertently. Yes. <laughs> uh, through, through his obliviousness has basically um, tasked his lieutenants with 
ensuring the security of the 66 states. Right. He probably, you know, is laying in bed, taking hits off his bong, being like, <laughs> we need, we need walls. Yeah. We need to be safe. Nothing can get through those. You know what makes you safe, man? A wall. That's what we fucking need. We need a wall. We need and a wall. They're like, yes, brother, thought love. Whatever, <laughs> whatever we need to do to get these walls and just make sure like a zombie can't get through them. Yeah. And so then you have these like three or four guys that are like, all right, all right, I have some ideas. Oh, you have some ideas too? All right, let's, you know. Oh, yeah, we have all these cars. Okay, we, you know, we have power and we have fuel and we have like heavy machinery on yeah. the Air Force Base. Oh, yeah, we can, we can totally pile these up. Um, oh, hey, you know, this guy that just wandered in that we, did, you know, just assimilated. He's been a welder for like 30 years. Yeah, let's use that now. He's got some really cool ideas yeah. about how to make something structurally sound right. because he's been building like ships for 20 years or something. Well, that's what I'm saying is we play chick we we play with this trope in the best possible way. We by creating what is effectively like a not a pretty but a semi-functioning society right. without like a a strong overbearing religious leader. Whereas we get a sense that in uh the Sons of Man town, I don't yeah. know what I'll just call it Sons of I Man. I think town. they call it Sons of Man. Yeah. And I uh, I get the sense that their town is much more micromanaged, micromanaged, yeah. designed like oh yes we're gonna have a fence but yeah Brickerton uh, has a vision of what yeah he's he's been fantasizing about you know a homestead. For, right. This is for the, twenty years. This is the prepper guy. It's like yes. a prepper guy, but not like the cool prepper episode from This Is Us. This is like the prepper guy that believes the reason that they survived is because they deserved to survive. Right. And the only people who get to come in and take advantage of their hospitality are also people who deserve to survive, and that they have solely been given. The authority to decide who deserves to survive and who doesn't. And so he is the embodiment of the trope that I hate. But I don't mind it the way that we fold it into this book because he does not really stop our hero's journey in the way that they normally do. Right. And Chuck Wendig in this book is very good at subverting tropes. We go from, you know, the the Lamo, the last man on earth, the like the guy who's going to like save us all by being leader of this tiny fiefdom to brother Thuglow. And then we also have a hero character, a protagonist who is not the good guy. He's not a heroic character. He's right. a hero without being honorable. And a lot happens in this segment because we get the sons of man coming to attack the 66 states. We have the hunters who have been hunting Cobra in this entire right. and time. And now the four of them are together. Right. So we have them attacking the 66 states. And then we have the party is split. So sun sets and Coburn shows up because Coburn rode on the bottom of the Humvee. That's how he got in. And hid out in a house during the day. Right. And I love that part where Kayla, he hears Kayla's voice in his head instead of his monster. And she's yes. like, don't just kill him. And then he goes in the bathroom and there's child porn. And he's like, justification achieved. And he just goes back and kills <laughs> yeah, the Yeah. And guy. He, hears, he hears no... Uh... 
comment from Kayla's voice yeah, in his head. Yeah, he's like, see, told you he deserved it. And so he kills the guy. And then he goes to talk to Brother Thuglow. And Brother Thuglow is so funny because he got the bong smashed over his head. And so the lady's picking glass out of his head. And he's like, they just don't appreciate me, man. And then finally he's like, I don't, I'm done. I don't want any more glass picked out right now. Like, let's, let's just have sex and go to sleep or whatever. And this is when Coburn shows up and he's like, where are my people? And Brother Thuglow is immediately like, oh, shit. Let me just spill the beans. Like, he immediately yeah. becomes a sympathetic character. He's like, well, I told them to kill that guy at sundown, but, like, sometimes they're really slow about it. I don't know. Like, maybe they might not have done it yet. Meanwhile, Gil is beating people to death with a tricycle. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Kayla and Cecilia, everybody kind of breaks out of wherever they are. A lot happens. I'm not going to describe it all. We end up in this cafeteria, and Coburn shows up. He, like, falls through the ceiling, and he's like, He's like, sup, sheeple? He's like, I'm here to save you. And this is when the hunter reaches down and pulls him right. out. Yeah, he's like, all right, everybody, I'm here. We're we're good now. Yeah. Let's- he's like, I got Brother Thuglow. We got the, um, which I forget what the guy's real name is, but I got Thuglow. I got a golf cart and we've got a helicopter. He's gassing it up right now. Like, we're going to go get in the helicopter. We're going to get out of here. Shit's hit the fan. We got to flee. And they're like, okay, okay, what's the plan? And he's like, <gasps> and then whoop, he gets yoinked, <laughs> yoinked out. And um, he's basically like giving him, he's letting, he wants them to go. Like he doesn't want anybody to save him at this point. Right. He's, he's keeping the hunters distracted. Right. And this and... is when Lily, we find out Lily has been going through some kind of transcendental experience. Yes. Because she has kind of glimpsed divinity through what Kayla is capable of doing. And so her trauma response to all of this is to like deify Kayla. Deify Kayla. And so she gets a hold of Or at a least grenade. like a messiah complex. Right. Um, in a in a very like it doesn't feel that way. It feels very much like right. it's not a it's not like a toxic version of it. No. Yeah. It's, it's a very she, this is her anchor for finding meaning in the world. Right. Making the world a meaningful place is my contrib- my existence is justified by assisting Kayla. Right. And so we end up we end up having Lily sacrifice herself to save Coburn because Coburn is getting eaten by the hunters. And she walks up and just pulls the pin on the grenade. The grenade explodes. It kills all but one of the hunters. Well, she I like how she does it, where she throws one grenade yeah. to get their attention, and then she pulls the pin out of the other one but is holding the lever, Yeah, but like hiding it. And then she waits for them to pounce on her, Yeah, and then she explodes herself. And this is another transformative moment for Coburn, because he's like, oh my God, somebody just killed themselves. For me. For me. And he ends up getting on the, they're all getting in the helicopter. And then Kayla feels someone get in beside her. And she looks to see if it's Lily, but it's Coburn. And he's like, she goes, Lily. And he just shakes his head because he's kind of overcome in this moment. Yeah. And as they're flying away, he flips off Benjamin Brickert because he can't help himself. And Benjamin Brickert's like, somebody get me a sniper rifle. And he ends up shooting the gas tank. Where, <laughs> if 
Coburn had not <laughs> flipped off Brickert. But he is not an honorable character. Our hero right. is not our most heroic character. And this is just part of he didn't even think it through. It didn't occur to right. him it was just that he was impulse. in danger. It was just like, fuck that dude. And he just yeah. flipped him off. Yeah. He he goes through the cathartic act. Yeah. And there are consequences. <laughs> and then we have another pretty transformative experience for him because like the sun is coming up, the helicopter crashes. And they save him. They, like, wrap him in blankets. But when he wakes up... And he has another long dream. Yeah. Well, when he wakes up, everybody is dead. Is this where he has the dream where he actually remembers yes, what Yes, I happens? think he actually remembers the fact that, like, he was... Well, he, he, he keeps seeing it over and over again. Because he's... Even in his memory, he's lying to himself about his role in this because he right. first sees the vampire kill his daughter and then attack him. And then right. it's like, no, that's not true because this is his, like, the the vampire that created him is like, come on, this that's is not how it happened. Try again. And so he sees it happen again, except this time he gets attacked first. And then he finds out that he is the one who killed his own daughter. Right. He was just sitting in his living room, like watching TV or something. Yeah. And the, this vampire Blondie, who we never find out. Their, no, we find out name. fuck all about him. Yes. Uh, Blondie breaks in and kills him and then um, I think cuts his throat to feed. Blondie cuts Blondie's throat yeah. to feed blood to John Wesley. Yeah. And turn John Wesley into a Coburn, vampire. Yeah. And then and then kind of eases vampire Coburn through the transition into vampire. And then like here. I think he had uh Rebecca tied up. He has yeah. Um waiting right. for Coburn to eat. Right. And and then he's like, All right, here, here you go. And so then he's like, oh, shit, I ripped out her throat or whatever. And then he wakes up. And, and everybody's dead. In the helicopter, everybody is dead. Everybody Green has Huff their throat dead. ripped Everyone out. Everyone is dead. He has killed everybody. And he's like, oh, shit, I was reliving this memory of killing my daughter. And in reality, I was killing everybody else because, you know, I got hurt in the crash and i just instinctively killed everyone right because he got really hurt well he got really hurt when they were eating him and then he gets in the yes he gets in the helicopter and he realizes he's in this helicopter full of dead people of, no of people he wants to oh, kill yeah. like he's immediately like oh shit i'm oh yeah i'm so hungry and i'm and in the monster takes over yeah yeah and so he thinks he's killed everybody and this is when he gets picked up by the sons of man and he's like i killed everybody and they're like mm-hmm and then we kind of get our scenes with the Sons of Man, where we really get to find out, like, the villains in this are not the people you think would be the villains. Brother Thuglow's not the villain. Yes, there were villainous people in the 66 states, i.e. child pornography guy. But Brother Thuglow wasn't the bad guy. The Sons of Man, like, hyper-competent, hyper-religious, blue-collar guy is the bad guy. He's not bad because he set up this like authoritarian society that's doing well. Yeah. He's the bad guy because he finds out they are 
on a mission to deliver a cure. But and he doesn't want there to be a cure. He doesn't want there to be a cure. Right. So he, our... he's the villain because he thinks, well, because he actively works to maintain the status quo. Right. So our honorable character is the villain and our dishonorable character is the hero. Right. In this story. Because objectively speaking, Benjamin Brickert should be the heroic character. And sees himself as the heroic character. And sees himself as the heroic character. But he is not the heroic character. He takes them all the way to the lab. And it takes a long time because Coburn is a wise character, but he is not an intelligent character. It takes him a while to put all the pieces together. And he's finally like, hang on. Why am I hungry? I should not be hungry. I should not still have all of the damage that I had from the right. hunters. Right, I, sh I shouldn't have this slash on my chest from, um, you know, pink bathrobe. Yeah. Uh, what, what? If I drank, you know, five people's worth of blood, I should be like brimming. Yeah. Why am I like starving and not healing? Oh shit. And then he see he's they're there. They're, Self awareness. Yeah, he finally has not figures, been Coburn's strong suit. He's new to it, okay? He's new to, he's it. new to it. But I love how he gets the guy. Like I love how he gets out because the guy they like he's chained up. He's almost desiccated again. He needs blood immediately. He has no strength to get it. And the guy stands in front of him, he's like, Your shoes untied. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, there is one thing no human can resist. I know exactly what I need to do. He's like, your shoe's untied. And the guy leans down to tie his shoe and he just attacks him. Right. That's enough. That's, That's close enough. enough. And then we get a really tragic ending. I mean, the ending is objectively and subjectively tragic because every character dies except Gil and Coburn. Yeah, at the... At the lab in the skyscraper? Yeah, because as they're climbing the stairs, like, first Abner stops, and he's like, I'll wait here. You guys pick me up on your way down, because he can't go any higher in the stairwell. And so the guy who's with them shoots him. Yep. Shoots yeah, him. as soon as Abner yeah. is like, all right, I'm ready to take some more stairs. Yeah. Right. And they get to the door, and they ring the doorbell, and the, guy, the, the people in the lab are like, yeah, nice try, but no, we're not letting you in. And so they're like, okay, blow the door. He's like, look at the marks on here. Somebody's tried to get in here with an axe. Somebody's tried to get in here with a battering ram. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're not going to like bang or cut our way through this door. Luckily, we brought some explosives. Look, yeah. We're going to blow the door. Right. And this is when Gil and Kayla and Cecilia, who are still with them, are like, what? No, you can't do that. Like, this is the lab. We can't risk harming the people in the lab. And they're like, oh, that's exactly why we're here, actually. And yeah. so Cecilia actually does something um, altruistic. Yeah. She's like, don't threaten Gil and stands in front of Gil and they shoot Cecilia. Yeah. Which gives Gil time to get his gun out. and. Yeah. And they I blow the door. shoots somebody and goes down the stairs. Well, they end up blowing the door. They get in. Don't they get in the lab? Because there's they killing people in the in lab. The lab. Um, one of the women with the Sons of Man takes Kayla off into another room to keep her safe. Because they, they're still interested in preserving Kayla. Because I, I think this is even in Brickert's head. Like, if she is 
a cure. Then he gets to decide then, who gets it. Then I should be the one that decide, or, you know, the sons of man should be the ones who decide who gets the cure. Right. And meanwhile, there's like an infinite number of hunters because the hunter figures out how to make other hunters, yep. how to share her blood, how to eat, because she eats all the other parts of all the other hunters. And I, I like how we go with the, there's actually something supernatural yes. happening here. Because even from the beginning, when he's talking about how the blood works, like what he gets out of the blood, he drinks blood, but he doesn't pee or poop. Yes. Right? Where does the blood go? Right. And it's not the blood itself, because uh, human blood is way better than any animal's blood. Right. Even though, like, molecule-wise, they're basically the same thing. Yeah. It's the, like, level of consciousness or level of self-awareness. Yeah. And there's some kind of – this is p kind of where it reminded me of the passage because there, in the passage there's there's like a whole spirit realm. Mm -hmm. And part of the vampire thing is you're connected to the spirit realm. Yeah. And you like draw energy. Like that's where you get your power from. And so I was thinking of it as like living things have – like a conduit to the spirit realm and yeah. your um, your level of consciousness, whatever, um, is like the size of your conduit yeah. to the spirit realm. And the vampire doesn't have an active connection. Right. They have to steal it. They have to steal that connection to the spirit realm via the blood. Yeah. And as long as they keep this blood in their body, they have like a conduit that they can open and close to draw in energy to heal their body and yeah. literally like generate matter because it doesn't matter what, like how much of his body is left. As long as he gets blood, he can, he can regrow his yeah. body and the like volume of blood consumed doesn't always match the volume of body regrown. Yeah. And so... In the same way, the zombies are, these hunters are like consuming blood and gaining that conduit the same way the vampires do, but it's twisted. Yeah. And so, and then the, the vampires kind of have a conduit to their maker. Yes. And so that, that's how they sustain their connection. To, and that's how he calls the hunters. Yes. Because he calls the hunters after the sons of man. Because he real he he wants to die, and he knows the hunters can kill him, and so he calls them once he realizes that he can, and that's why they chase them all the way to Los Angeles, and why they're coming up the stairs, they're swarming the building, they're about to kill everybody, and he's like, okay, there's only one solution here, you have to kill me. Because at this point, we found out not only is he responsible for the hunters, he's responsible for the entire fucking zombie apocalypse. Indirectly. Well, indir he didn't do it. Brickert did. Because right, Brickert stole his finger. It's they his vampire-ness. 
his vampire essence yeah. that is responsible Which for. Which, if you read it again, there's hints throughout the book. Like, the zombies are more active at night. Yeah. During the day, they just sort of roam around. as And as long as you don't make a ton of noise, they don't even bother you. And the sunlight kind of disables them a little bit. It desiccates them. Yeah. Yeah. It's just slower than a vampire. Yeah. So... Brickert, you, Brickert gave it to a friend who used it to create the zombie plague. Inadvertently. Inadvertently. And so he ends up killing himself. Well, he has Kayla kill him. Shoot him in the head. Because if you can destroy his head, you kill him. If you kill him, you kill everything he's ever made. So all the hunters die. So she shoots him in the head. But then she's dying. She's finally at the end stage of her cancer. Right. She knows she won't survive a journey to so they they're in the lab and they're yeah. still like one it, lady is is alive enough to go dying. there's another lab <laughs> there is another, another. <laughs> cure lab <laughs> yeah in san francisco and he, they're like okay great we got to get kayla to san francisco and kayla's like i'm not going to make it i'm not going to make it to san francisco and so she jabs a letter opener in her yeah, neck yeah she grabs the letter opener and when she, when she's in the side office, she defends herself and kills the lady that's keeping her captive. Yeah. yeah, and she stabs herself in the neck and gives all of her blood to Coburn. Yeah. And then we find out that, like, now she's in Coburn's head. Right. And it she, ends. It wasn't just her blood. It was her, her, her entire spirit. Yeah, he gets everything. And because of that, well, I love that Gil's first response is to shove him out the window. Yeah. <laughs> but the sun is rising and he's like, oh, look at the sunrise. He like crushed a car. He's broken. And he's like, oh, look, the sun. It doesn't feel terrible. So we find out like she fundamentally changed him. He's no yeah. longer allergic to the sun. He isn't as hungry. He isn't as chaotic. He's a little bit more in control of himself. And we end with Coburn, Gill, and Cream Puff, the three remaining characters, preparing to go to San Francisco. And I think we should probably wrap part one here because we're at an hour and 45 minutes and we haven't even started talking about the novella. And as short as it is, a whole fucking lot happens in the novella. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So we'll wrap it here, but I'm going to we're going to record part two and it'll be out like pretty quickly. So if you're anxious to hear us talk about the second part, don't worry, it's coming. But until next time, friends. Until next time. Oh, wait, do you want to do? Oh, you do it. Yeah. I, I was waiting for a nice segue oh, from okay. you. Okay, go. So remember, sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.